As part of its still-evolving Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, the Pentagon wants proof that its vendors are safeguarding sensitive information. A lot of vendors think the CMMC requirements are pretty onerous. As part of the 2021 Defense Authorization Bill, Congress asked DOD to show some evidence that the Pentagon is meeting the same cybersecurity standards it's demanding from contractors. The short answer is no. For the longer answer, we turn to Joe Kirschbaum, Director for Defense Capability and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. The uh, Code of Federal Regulations requires that uh, federal systems and those systems that support federal information, and especially information that controlled unclassified information category, right? It's not classified, but it is still sensitive in some way, shape, or form. Uh, it requires systems to be protected in terms of their the confidentiality information, who has access to it. And then along with that, to, to implement those things, there are the National Institute for Standards and Technology, the NIST, has developed their own outlines and sets of standards for security controls for systems that manage the CUI. And for example, the the Department of Defense has set up um, a framework that's the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Framework, the CMMC, uh, specifically for companies that handle CUI information for the Department of Defense, contractors, uh, whatnot. And this was a way for them to better protect their own systems that handle CUI. So that mature CMMC um, basically took the NIST standards and set up things, um, uh, the standards that they would have to follow in order for those systems to be certified to handle information. So, for example, the CMMC has 110 security control requirements that come from NIST that are required for systems. And then the DOD set up a, a uh, a way for companies to basically self-certify using third-party assessors and things of that nature. And one of the things that the Congress was interested in was they heard a lot of pushback from contractors about the way CMMC is being rolled out, the requirements for, for certification, the way it was being handled. And at a fundamental level, the Congress was concerned about whether or not DOD themselves could meet the same security control standards as the CMMC. The first thing that the department did was determine that they were not going to use the CMMC as their standard for that report. They used the department's risk management framework. Not to make any qualitative judgments about which is better because, frankly, they're different. The department chose to use risk management framework because it is different. It's a risk-based versus compliance-based, which is what the CMMC is. The CMMC has a strict set of guidelines and companies must adhere to each one of those as a checklist in order to be certified. Risk management framework is based on just that, an assessment of risk for different parts, which controls apply, which don't. And um, when systems aren't in compliance, a way to get them into compliance, which requires time, a plan of action, and efforts, and determination. So that's what the Department of Defense did. They rated themselves against that risk management framework to provide that picture to Congress about how they're doing on cybersecurity. That's a really good setup. And and let's let's start with the CMMC piece. I almost think it makes sense to break that apart from the rest of DOD's cybersecurity requirements, since that was sort of a new addition Congress added fairly recently in this sort of what's good for the goose is good for the gander sort of question. Can we start with CMMC? And, and what's the basic answer to that question, uh, the extent to which DOD components are meeting the CMMC requirements? So when, when we did our review of this report, uh, 
we understood that that's what the department did. They used risk management framework. We, however, were still looking at the original intent, which was to use CMMC. So we did. We took DOD's data and we went back to the compare it to CMM standards to see if they would have uh, indeed uh, met them. The answer, in short, is no. They would not have, have been in compliance with the, with the same CMMC standards as any other companies. And that's primarily because, not because they were you know, many, any worse off in a lot of ways, but it's because, for example, the department couldn't fully meet those 110 absolutely required standards. And the reason is because DOD does not always apply those same standards. They apply a much broader set of standards, but um, depending on the risk of the individual system, they may not apply all of them at the same time. So essentially, a DOD would have not been able to meet all the standards. And because they wouldn't have been uh, able to meet all of those standards, they would not have been held in compliance. That's the way it works for CMMC. Um, and the way it works for DOD is if you have a system that's not in compliance, you have to develop a plan to get it in compliance. Uh, and that plan is built into your, whatever you want to call it, a waiver or a way to, to get yourself into compliance, a bridge to compliance, whatever it is, that's a standard practice that is not considered in CMMC. Now, I say not, I mean before, but right now they're undergoing a look at CMMC and how to for rulemaking to changes, and they're probably going to include such things as these plans of action. But DOD at the time didn't have that, and, and uh, so they would not have been in compliance, which is you know one of the reasons they probably chose to not necessarily ignore CMMC, but to, to use the risk management framework to, for a probably a more a more uh, holistic assessment of how they're doing. Right, and then moving on from CMMC, I, th- I think the other part of the answer here is even if that CMMC standard were not applied to DOD. They're also not up to snuff, even under the the tr- more traditional RMF requirements that have been in place for quite some time now, including things as basic as getting all your systems ATO'd on the network. Yeah, exactly. The the uh, the, the first thing you know, we found a, a few things in their in their data as they you know as DoD was uncovering as they did the report to Congress and as we were doing our work is they had some systems that were just from the get go were inc- incorrectly uh, categorized whether or not they were supposed to be. Uh, at the moderate level, which is which is um, for moderate impact for for potential loss of, of information, that's what they're all supposed to be is at moderate level. And they had some 13% of their systems incorrectly categorized lower than that. So they they recognized that right off the bat when they started unpacking the. Uh, when you look at the um, controls, you know they're they're about yeah about 82. We found like roughly 82%. I I, I hedge there because it's changed since then. They've gotten better. Mm about 82% and compliance with the security controls required for moderate impact for just their own RMF standards. So there's a good, you know, 18% or so room for improvement there. And then, like, as you mentioned, the fact that they're supposed to really, over and above any of these um, controls, they're supposed to proactively authorize systems to operate in the network, you know, looking at the system itself, assessing its confidentiality and, and integrity, and then affirmatively authorizing that it can be on the network. There were some some 7% of DOD systems overall that didn't have those valid authorizations for whatever reason. Um, and so the department during this whole process, they they uncovered this themselves because they hadn't been necessarily tracking that before. And now it became readily apparent to them. And you mentioned in the report that the department had a March deadline to come into compliance on, on several of these things. And I don't know if that was a statutory deadline or a DOD CIO deadline, but I think it's probably a safe assumption that they did not meet that March deadline. Can we tell what the kind of trajectory is and how long it might take for real progress to be made here? 
Absolutely. So th this is actually, a, from our perspective, I think this is a pretty good news story because, to be honest, when we were doing this working, we found some of these these gaps and these differences that the department themselves had found and then we had kind of validated. And the concern was, it's something we had seen in the past, that they've that the department's really good about strategizing, setting up goals, but really doesn't follow through as well sometimes on implementation. So we had seen that pattern again. And that's kind of how we were proceeding. But uh, as we were um, really undergoing this work, the CIO's office, they had really started to put together a lot of these systems to get themselves on a, on a better trajectory. And so that was what, what you're referring to, the March deadline to do some of these things was established in October 2021. It was a memo by the CIO that set up requirements for applying baseline controls for CUI. It really reiterated all the things they hadn't been following as, as much. They hadn't been tracking. So that, it, for example, requires um, those information uh, systems to be categorized correctly and then also to kind of catch up with where they were. It also requires the um, things like supply chain controls, things that are, that are really a concern in term, for terms of information systems and acquisition strategies and uh, how to do things for like looking at suppliers before you write contracts. So it requires things like that. It requires the need to reiterate validation authorization uh, and really catch up on where they are and they're closing the gap on those things. And then the most important kind of, a, um, the second most important, excuse me, that the timeline for compliance. Yes, it requires March, 2022 to, to, for full compliance. And yes, the department did not meet that. However, what it does do, it requires that for each of those instances where you don't meet it before those, those um, plans of action and milestones, right? They're so important it's an actual acronym in DOD, and, and it's even more important that you actually pronounce it as a word, POAM, and uh, it requires those things which have corrective action plans so that you can get into compliance. And then an oversight mechanism, which is one of the things that also the CIO set up to keep track of all these things. You pair up an oversight, a good oversight mechanism with those, those corrective action plans, you really can get on a better trajectory to make sure you're closing whatever gaps you found. And then in the meantime, you're using the risk management framework for what it was intended, right? You have systems that, on, that are operating on the network, but they're doing so with a really clear understanding of what the risks are and how to correct them. And I guess to continue on your good news theme, e even though DOD didn't completely take seriously the congressional direction to apply CMMC to itself, it sounds like this, this legislation at least gave the department a bit of a kick in the pants to go on a journey of self-discovery here and, and start to pull apart some of the security deficiencies that have probably been around for a long time, right? I really agree with that. I agree with that characterization that you just, you just used, that self-discovery. That, that's exactly what it looked like to us. You know, there was, there was a lot of concern from external parties and from us and others. We've been pushing DOD for years and the fact they've got this gap between strategy and implementation and you know, we hit them pretty hard a few years ago on, on the fact that a lot of the cyber issues that we talk about, implementation, are, are cultural issues rather than technical issues. And they don't follow through as well on those. And so this really, um, as they started to unpack some of the data themselves, realizing the gaps they had, they looked like they really kind of did some self-reflection and kind of narrowed down what they needed to do in the short term to, to really uh, get some things going. So that was, uh, that was fairly refreshing. Joe Kirschbaum, Director for Defense Capability and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office, speaking with Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview in a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Still to come, contractors are beginning to wonder who's in charge of labor law enforcement for them. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether You know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And 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 he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, 
I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.